We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus, and today, a conversation about the Nebraska ballot initiatives. First, we'll hear from Senator Terrell McKinney about Initiative 433, which would raise Nebraska's minimum wage. No one can live off of $9 an hour. People like to say, like, oh, that's just a starting wage for entry-level people. Even if that is so, why do we value them so low? In the second half of the show, Tom Noblock talks to Heather Engdahl, director of voting rights at Civic Nebraska, about Initiative 432, which would require photo identification to vote. We're looking at tens of thousands of Nebraskans, maybe even more than 100,000 Nebraskans. Um, they too could be turned away and, and denied their right to vote. Stay tuned for my conversation with Senator Terrell McKinney after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. Today, I'm talking with Senator Terrell McKinney, who's here to explain Initiative 433 on this November's ballot that would gradually increase Nebraska's minimum wage from $9 to $15 over the next four years. McKinney has previously tried to introduce legislation in the unicameral to address Nebraska's stagnated minimum wage, but it didn't make it past committee hearings. Here is our conversation. Tell me about how raising the minimum wage became a priority to you and the work that you're doing within the state legislature. It was it was something I had thought about while I was running for office and really prior because I always thought the minimum wage made no sense and it wasn't a livable wage at all. So during my first term in office, I introduced a bill to raise the minimum wage and it didn't go anywhere. And then after that, I got approached about possibly you know, assisting with, you know, putting it on a ballot. And I was like, yes, it was it was a no-brainer. Because I, I just truly believe that no one can live off of $9 an hour. Um, and I know, like, I, I know people like to say, like, oh, that's just a starting wage for entry-level people. But still, even, even if that is so, why do we value them so low? Especially... When during the pandemic, we looked at those people that were making $9 an hour as essential workers. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't probably be back to where we're at today, where, where you know, COVID isn't gone, but it, it isn't as bad as it was. And, you know, I think it's a human piece to it to where we need to value people. And then you have employers saying, like, oh, people don't want to come back to work and things like this. People don't want to go back to work because, one— Prior to the pandemic, a lot of people were underpaid. They weren't valued at these companies. They were belittled. 
dehumanized and things like that and people had time to you know sit back and reevaluate life and think about do I really want to do this should I find something else and that's that is what's happened and then people that I know I'm probably going ahead but <laughs> that's right. you know people that oppose raising minimum wage to me it makes no sense because you look around and you see employer after employer paying 15 or more now because they do realize the market has shifted and people aren't going to show up to these jobs that are paying $9 an hour, no matter how much you think it's going to happen, you know? Yes. And that's interesting. So this is your second time around going about trying to raise the minimum wage and you're going in a different direction by getting it on the ballot. So what did you learn from that first time around on what's going to be effective and hopefully speak to the Nebraskan people? Um... I think the first time around, it was my first time in office. I really was learning on the fly and trying to learn as I go. So I introduced it, and I think the the the, the best thing about it was I had a hearing and I had people come and heard the op- the opposition testimonies, and I'm like, wow, their opposition really isn't opposition. It's really we don't want to pay people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. To me, I didn't find true substance in their arguments, honestly. Um, it was To me, it was just people that was ignoring data, real data, you know, not fake news or things like that. And, you know, people that just didn't want to pay people more. Yes. So then who are you working with right now to raise the minimum wage? Uh, so I'm re- working with the Raise the Wage campaign uh, here in the state of Nebraska. Um, a lot of great people that are part of the campaign. Uh, Kate Wolf. Um, other individuals like that are part of Nebraska Appleseeds team, and there's other people across the state as well that are you know putting in some work. Yeah, I saw your coalition member list, and I was just curious about um, how this initiative 433 is what's going to be on the ballot, correct? Yes. Um, how is that going to actually directly impact the communities that these organizations um, that are on this initiative serve? I think it's gonna going to directly impact the communities they serve because. Uh, a lot of these entities work with people that aren't in the best positions um, or people that are trying to, you know, better themselves and things like that. And a lot of those individuals aren't making a lot right now. So just imagine and by 20, what is it, 25 or 26, you know, they're making a wage that is more than they probably ever made in their life. And the shift in morale and, you know, self-esteem and, you know, I have extra money to, you know, do things for my kids or buy, you know, different items. I don't have to buy these food items that aren't the healthiest, but they're the most affordable. I think it opens up more possibilities for families to, you know, improve their health, you know, mentally and physically. Yeah, I think that's so important and kind of taking that response and going back to what you said about feeling valued, I think it's so important for folks to feel valued monetarily and emotionally in jobs. And I think that this initiative will really help with that. Yes. Because you see, like, whenever I feel valued in a job, I want to work harder at that job. So I see that as a way that businesses can benefit from raising the wage. For sure. I was talking to uh, a guy that runs a wealth management company here earlier today, and that was a part of the conversation. It was like, we have these amenities and we pay our we pay our employees more because we want them to feel valued. Because studies have shown if employees feel valued in the company that they work for, production is a lot better. You know, you see a lot of changes. You see people that are 
you know, eager to get to work every day instead of, ah, oh, I got to go in today. And then come a Friday payday and you look at your check and it's like I worked X amount of hours, got screamed at, belittled and all these type of things. It, it, it's just a different thing when, you know, people see that the effort that they're putting in at these companies are, you know, valued and they're not just getting other people rich off the off of their sweat and tears. What demographic do you see the raising the minimum wage directly impacting, especially here in Omaha, but also across Nebraska? More than likely, you know, because contrary to popular belief, people that work minimum wage jobs aren't all teenagers and college students. It's a lot of, you know, adults, 25 and older, that are still working at these places. So I think it would probably more so value it, it help those between about 25 and up. It, it will inherently help younger individuals but i think the the biggest demographic that will be helped a lot more is you know people 25 and up have you seen from the opposition maybe a little bit more empathy towards the cause because of the way that you guys have structured it over the next few years can you talk a little bit about that um i don't you would think so you know a lot of them say oh we're gonna raise it to 15 dollars. this is gonna destroy small businesses and I don't think that's the case. And and to even answer that or try to address that issue, it's a gradual approach. It's not a vote on a ballot November 8th, come 2023, it's $15. That's not the case. And I, and I think they try to leave that out the conversation. It's a gradual stepped approach to make sure that businesses can be, can survive and, and be sustainable. But empathy... I don't know. I think when you mix greed in, it's it's hard to see empathy sometimes. If you're just joining us, my guest is Senator Terrell McKinney, who is here to talk about Initiative 433 that will be on the ballot this November and would increase Nebraska's minimum wage to $15 by 2026. So how do you see, uh, in kind of response to folks saying that this is going to hurt small businesses, how do you kind of combat that and say, actually, this is going to help small businesses? One, there's examples across the country of different, you know, places raising their minimum wages and seeing a shift. And also, I was at a hearing for the the ballot initiative last week, and there were small business owners there testifying, saying, hey, we pay our employees this amount, and we've seen a benefit in paying them this, and people will want to stay and all these type of things. And, you know, so... It's to me it that's like a cop out in a way just to say oh this is going to destroy business how explain it you know and and they really don't it's just oh it's going to hurt businesses but there's not a real substance behind it and that's the that's the issue I have with the opposition prove it <laughs> I like it I like that <laughs> mindset of just you know prove it because we have shown in other states who have raised their minimum wage that this has actually helped us mm-hmm. as a community as a city as a state. In the future, how do you see uh, the state legislature working with representatives at a federal level to help you um, encourage or help the nation encourage raising the minimum wage at a federal level? I would hope that once Initiative 433 is passed, that it it shows an example of this, this actually works and it benefits everyone as a whole. And I'm hopeful those in Congress see it and say, hey, we need to take this from 725. Because honestly, who could live on 725? 
especially even not even before the pandemic or this current economy, living on seven dollars and twenty five cents was impossible. You can't pay rent, barely eat and survive. And God forbid you have a family. Yes, I <laughs> <laughs> I know I was like be, to prepare for this. I was just doing the math of even just what it is today at nine dollars an hour. And I was like this. And then the um, the people that oppose it also oppose people utilizing government benefits like social welfare, and you know, food stamps and those type of things. So it's like you you oppose paying people more, but you also oppose people getting assistance because you won't pay them more because you won't support this you can't have both no (laughs) i know it's it's really interesting those those responses of like you can't have either and it's like well how how do you suggest that we help folks you know get out of the rut they're in or uh become independent and make their own money and is it working five full-time jobs because that seems like from the math i was doing the only way that you can actually Pay, afford to do that at minimum wage. <laughs> I know, and then you you have people saying like, "Oh, Nebraska has the lowest unemployment rate." It's like that is true, but it doesn't one of one of the lowest unemployment rates. But it, it doesn't tell the whole story or give a full picture because a lot of people are working minimum wage jobs, but they're working multiple minimum wage jobs. So yes, it's low, but these people don't. Most of these individuals do not want to work two jobs and raise a family then you get people complaining like oh what are we going to do about our youth in the community i don't know you know maybe pay their parents more is is a one of the one piece to the solution because if a mom or dad has to work two jobs to support the family which it means they probably won't be home after school probably not gonna you know be there as much as they probably would like to so let's try to pay them more maybe take away one of these jobs so they're only working one job but they're getting paid more and they're able to assist their children and the youth and making sure that they are getting a proper education not in the streets and these type of things yeah i think that's a very important point too of how it affects families because you see like I mean, people who are making a minimum wage, if they are in a family, they can't afford a nanny or after school program. We've seen those rates soar, too. And so that does seem like a good solution to be able to get them, give them back the time with their family and help in that developmental growth as their children are growing up and hopefully in the future going to be aiding to society um, and things like that. Because unless you're rich, you can't afford to have one of the parents stay home. Yes. It's, you know, we're not in the... 50s and 60s where we have a society where there's a lot of stay-at-home parents that tide has shifted a long time ago and most parents are all working unless you're well off Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting because so when i was doing the math the annual salary of the minimum wage worker is about nineteen thousand dollars a year in nebraska and if you're, you know, adhering to financial advice that you're supposed to spend less than 30% on housing, that's $475 a month. But you can't even find a studio in no. Omaha for $475 a month. No. That's why it's always frustrating when I see people say, oh, we're doing this new development in the communities. We're going to have affordable housing. It's like, where? How? Make it make sense. Because if you're charging this amount in the in the median income of this community, just 
use what is it like thirty thousand in in my district, I think, or something close to it. It's it's not affordable. You can't survive. You're spending close to half of your month yearly salary or whatever you make a year on just trying to pay rent on rent to a landlord and that doesn't even include utilities yeah doesn't include utilities um some of these houses are owned by slum lords or outside entities that don't care about the community so they're not making sure the house is weatherized properly so you can save on utility bills there is it's so many issues that pe- pe- these people don't think about yeah. Have you, um, speaking of your district, have you been out talking to folks in your district? And can you share with us maybe a story that you've heard regarding the minimum wage? I don't know if I have a specific story. It's just more so, you know, doing this work for the past whatever amount of years and just speaking to people and just hearing the stories about I had to choose between paying a utility bill or buying food. And those type of things and making those hard decisions. Um, And it's decisions that even my mom had to make when I was coming up. Uh, She had to decide, could I go to a wrestling tournament or is she going to pay, you know, a bill? And and, and those type of things. So I don't know if I got a specific story, have a specific story currently. but Well, your your (laughs) own story is important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I, actually a question I had on here too is like, what kind of needs do you see folks skipping because of low wages? Like, I mean, housing and food seem to be the important ones, but then you throw in prescription costs and yep. you throw in kids' needs and everything else. It's like, how do you even start to prioritize that? And with generally maybe not having the best idea of how to be like financially literate. Yeah, it's it's a lot of things that kind of go to the wayside when you're not making a lot or you're living in poverty you you don't think about you know i need to go get my annual checkup at the doctor you don't think about that because how i'm gonna how am i gonna get there our transportation system in the city of omaha isn't the best um how am i gonna pay the copay um and those type of things or if something bad happens or if i have to go to go through surgery who's gonna pay these medical bills and those type of things We've covered a lot today, like just in this quick 20, 25 minute session, but it's all intertwined, right? We've talked about housing, we've talked about food access, we've talked about transportation. And so I think this minimum wage, um, the initiative 433, is going to be a good first step into starting to address those things in the communities that need it most. I think so, for sure. Because one of the things I told myself while running for office and still I tell myself every day is that once I'm done, you know, one of the things I want to look back on and say I had a part in decreasing the amount of poverty. I, I know I cannot eliminate it by myself or anything like that, but I, I want to say that I, you know, had a hand in doing that. Because I think once we d- begin to decrease the amount of poverty in these communities, we'll see better education outcomes. I believe you'll see less crime. I believe you'll see better health outcomes um it just morale of the community will shift because when you look at other parts of the town the difference is one 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 piece of the town median income is what 30 something the other is 60 plus and the spirits and the morale and the energy of both of both of those are different 
because one there's that wealth gap that hasn't been addressed that needs to be addressed um do you think state senators also deserve to receive a minimum wage other than the twelve thousand dollars a year that you currently make yes (laughs) i mean it's just honestly just not enough you know the job of a senator is more than the 90 or 60 days that we're in session we still have to go to hearings we still have to meet with constituents and other individuals within the community and i know they say oh you could get another job but it's not that it's really not that easy to get another job there's not many places going to say hey come work for me for x amount of days out the year but we're going to let you just get a check and not you know come to work during this time or if if or not get a check but say we're going to hold your position it's really not that easy um so yes i think it should be raised i think it should be honestly the median income out of state or even the district you know yeah it was it's interesting i've always been curious just about about why it is twelve thousand dollars and then you look at other states who have don't have a unicameral and they have two entities to pay and yet we have maybe half the people in there and still only getting paid twelve thousand dollars it just seems like only privileged people are allowed to run for the senate for for the state legislature it's kind of how it's set up unless you're crazy like me but you know I hope more people like myself, you know, decide to run for office and try to, you know, get into the the legislature because I think it's needed. But I think we would see more people step up if it made financial sense because it it, it don't make financial sense at all unless you're, you know, own a company making millions or thousands. Yes. And I I hope that the inclusivity can also change within that as well, right? That more voices are being heard yep. that this initiative 433 will affect. Hopefully there would be more people in the legislature who would also understand that as well because they've experienced it. And I, but I think the conversation has to change as well it, it, because last time they tried to do it on a ballot and I think one of the reasons it didn't pass is people look at it as politicians that are trying to get rich. We're not trying to get rich. We're just trying to survive just like everybody else. And, and because I think city council makes 40-plus, county commissioners make 60-something, I think they get pensions, benefits. Legislature, we get, you know, 12000 a per diem. But, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bring it up since we're talking about minimum wage because when I looked at the 19000 for the annual salary of a minimum wage worker, I was like, hold on, state senators even make less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that folks need to know about this initiative 433? And is it going to be, you know, sometimes there's initiatives on the ballot where you're like, I don't really understand what this is asking me. So can you provide just a little bit more clarity about I what we'll the, see on the ballot and make sure that people fully uh, understand what they're voting yes or no for? I believe the language of the on, on, that'll be on the ballot, I think it's easy to understand. The biggest thing for people to understand is that raising the minimum wage is not a benefit for me as a voter. It's a benefit for the state as a whole to make it so, you know, every Nebraskan can live a good life or get close to it. I honestly think it should be more than 15, but we'll get there one day. But step I think by step. <laughs> 15 is a great start because we should ensure that everybody that lives in the state are living and not trying to survive. 
There's too many people surviving and not living, and we see why we have so many issues because so many of us are just trying to survive day to day, and we have to change that. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you as my first guest on Riverside Chats, and I just appreciate all the hard work that you are doing in and out of the state legislature. No problem. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Senator Terrell McKinney about Initiative 433, which, if it's passed, would raise Nebraska's minimum wage to $15 by 2026. After the break, Tom Noblock talks to Heather Engdahl of Civic Nebraska about another ballot initiative, 432, which would implement a voter ID requirement in future elections. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we'd love a review. I'm talking with Heather Engdahl, Director of Voting Rights at Civic Nebraska, about this year's Ballot Initiative 432, which would amend Article 1 of the Nebraska Constitution to require voters to present valid photo identification in order to vote. We're talking about what this would mean for Nebraska voters, elections, and how this compares to other states who have done something like this. Here is our conversation. So we just did a, a deep dive where people have been asking me, they're sort of like, hey, you should do an episode on ballot initiatives, the ballot, because they're always confusing and people don't know what to do with them. And they don't always, even if they think they kind of know what it's saying, it gets confusing about what does yes and no mean sometimes. So I had uh, Matthew Worsner, who's like our resident historian, and I just give him random things to figure out. We had him on the show. We did a whole episode on like the origin of ballot initiatives, and it ended and I sort of felt like at the end of the day, I don't know what we learned here exactly. Uh, it's still kind of confusing. So maybe do you have any insight into the construction of ballot initiatives and why they're difficult for people to wrap their mind around? Sure, sure. And and there are several types of ballot initiatives. Um, the voter ID initiative specifically is in the form of a constitutional amendment. And so I think just in general, when we're dealing with the state constitution or a document like that in general, the language can be a little bit confusing and complex, just not our usual language we use daily. And it's it's a big deal also to, to change a constitution. Um, and then the, the process of the initiative can vary also depending on the type it is. But first having a petition to gather signatures and then expecting on the ballot, even when it's on the ballot, it can be worded in these complex ways that is just very formal language. Mm-hmm. And it lists out like for and against but still can be confusing. You right. know, you're like, well, what change am I actually voting for or against? Right. So. Well, and people, they don't always know what to do. And they, I think a lot of times they want to do the right thing. But also the ballot can just be exhausting sometimes when there's so many things to pay attention to and try to remember, you know, how, how do I feel about this again? Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the time you reach the bottom of the ballot, you've, you've gone through the bigger picture, uh, you know, bigger offices that are more, more talked about in the media. Um, the races might have more money spent on them. So you hear about them more. And then the lower you get on the ballot, the more local the races are and then the initiatives that you might not have even heard about. So, yeah, you're already fatigued by the time you get to them. Right. And you might not even have had the information to go off of like other ones. Yeah, and I always get stuck on judges. And I always end up just asking lawyer friends I know, like, hey, what do you think of these guys? And then I usually it'll be like, I got in a fight with that guy. I got an argument with him once, so don't vote for him, which is not the best way to be informed, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, and it surprised me with the judges that we aren't voting for them. We're just voting to retain them. And that was new to me that, you know, the, the folks uh, that are in office that nominate the judges and get them appointed, and then we're just, you know, voting if they should be retained or not. That was really interesting to me to learn learn about that, too. 
Right. Well, okay. So basically why you're here today is to help me understand and help the listeners understand what exactly uh, it's Ballot Initiative 432. What does that mean? What does it do? What does it look like? How's it different? So let's just start really broadly. What does it propose? What does yes or no mean? Yeah. So this initiative, 432, is proposing to amend our state's constitution. Um, specifically, it's, it's amending the state's constitution to follow the line that outlines um, our elections shall be free of any hindrance or impediment um, and, and the right of the qualified voter um, has access to exercise that right. Um, and so the proposed change is to add a, a, a line to follow that would implement um, a requirement for photo ID um, for all voters in all elections to be shown before they're able to cast their ballot. Um, and so if you vote for this, it would implement this this amendment to the Constitution to require a valid and current photo ID before voting. And if you vote against that, um, we would not implement that change. And therefore, access to voting would remain um, as it is now. Um, and so I know we'll get into all the reasons why why we want to keep our elections free, fair, and accessible to voters. Yeah, so like right now, you go in to vote, and you say your name, and they find your ballot, and they hand it to you. But the change would be then you have to show a current ID to that person before they would hand you your ballot? Exactly. How does that work with like mail-in voting? Yeah, it would greatly complicate mail-in voting, um, specifically speculating, because the specifics of implementation will be set um, would be set by the state legislature. But um, speculating that a voter would need to make a photocopy of their ID and then print out that copy and include it in the envelope with their ballot. Um, And we know that there are so many barriers there just alone. It it just complicates an already um, pretty technical process with that already has steps to make sure it's secure. Um, And then you would need to include that copy of your ID with your ballot in the mail. Um, And for so many people, access to printing, copying, and, and the mechanics of all of that are understandably barriers to to voting, really. And so things that would count would be driver's license. Uh, you can just get like a government ID card, right? And then like a passport or the, would that work? I would hope so. Um, unfortunately, the vagueness of this language does not specify the specific types of IDs that would be accepted. Um, and so again, it just specifies that it would be sent to the state legislature to identify what would be accepted. But you're right on the mark, um, a driver's license, or state-issued ID, um, it would need to contain your photograph, your address, which would need to match your voter registration address, um, and then, of course, your name, your date of birth, and all of those pieces as well. Um, I would hope that a passport would be accepted, but we won't know that. We're being asked to vote on something without knowing exactly what would be accepted. And I would just add, too, that other forms of ID that are useful in other scenarios like student ID, military ID, and other cards they, we know that they wouldn't be accepted. If it doesn't have all of the components needed, um, it, it would be really narrowed down to the type of ID. Okay. So what the people who are proponents of this, what's the argument why they think that this is a worthwhile endeavor? Great question. Um, primarily, these um, false claims of voter fraud have really fueled a lot of these restrictions that we're seeing across the nation, really. But here in Nebraska, um, the, the proponents of, of initiating voter ID have acknowledged that we do not have voter impersonation issues and we don't have that type of voter fraud. Um, But they've argued that this type of measure, though it's costly and would restrict voting, um, it would prevent the fraud from happening. And it would be a preventive measure to make sure that it stays uh, secure as it is now. Okay. So 
You said then, so basically the idea would be you would think that it's sort of like justing or justifying shifting our electoral standards in a substantial way generally is a result of there being a really tangible problem. Like, what, what do the numbers actually look like? Are there cases of this type of voter impersonation in Nebraska? No, there is no no voter impersonation at all. The two to three cases that can be cited of any type of irregularity in, in elections uh, would be the duplication errors that occur. So if a person tried to vote twice, usually by accident, those are the, the cases that are brought up when it comes to claims of fraud. And um, in the end game, there has not been the prosecution of those cases because it's been investigated and identified that these were accidental mishaps of just trying to vote twice to make sure you got the vote in. But no, there are no cases of voter impersonation um, alleged or prosecuted. So why do you think this is the proposal as a preventative measure for something that doesn't seem to be creeping up as a problem? That is a great question that I wish I had a good answer to. I think ultimately we're seeing such a coordinated campaign of misinformation when it comes to election integrity. I think it stems from a lot of different things, but primarily since 2020, really, we've seen it ramping up and here in Nebraska specifically. Um, I think for many voters, there are valid concerns of, of keeping our elections safe and secure as they are. Um, but it's unfortunate that this specific tactic we know that it would not improve the security or it would not address any issue that is non-existent. Um, and, and bottom line, one voter turned away from exercising the right to vote is one too many. And so there are methods and tactics we can talk about that would not necessarily restrict access to voting, but maybe add some steps that are safeguards and extra steps of processing um, a, a ballots or our elections and all of that to say that our election officials already work tirelessly to keep all of these things running so smoothly and securely already. And so I ultimately, I think I think it really comes back to that misinformation about these ideas of rampant fraud, that elections are not only lacking security, but that they're intentionally rigged in some sort of way. Um, and, and bottom line is that those are un untrue statements. Well, yeah, I believe polling at this point doesn't uh, doesn't really strike a whole lot of uh, confidence when you look at the fact that there's a debate over still what the turnout was of the last presidential election, right? Not everybody accepts even that Joe Biden is the person who won that election. And when you get into the why, it seems like it's not like the numbers are really doing a lot of convincing one way or the other. It's a lot of just sort of like, well, it feels off to me, so I guess it's fake, right? And, and that's a difficult thing to fight, right? Because you're trying to you're trying to fight with sort of a tangible, like, okay, well, a problem can be quantified, right? And we can look at that and we can kind of address, all right, well, these numbers mean this and blah, 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 right? It's harder, though, when it's just sort of like this gut feeling or direct misinformation, like, for example, President Trump never really conceding. So how, what, what do you do with that? Right, right. I think, number one, do the best we can to continually try to cut through that narrative and try to cut through that noise of not only here are the facts, but let's dig a little bit deeper of why these claims are being made. Um, acknowledging that um, these efforts are really pulling on the emotional reaction of, of these allegations of, of our elections being uh, having a lack of security. And so I think really, really trying to dig deep on, on the why, the root of where this is coming from and to approach those emotional reactions that might occur because you you do care about your vote being secure and counted accurately um but 
ultimately just really cutting through that to, to just have these conversations and, and know that the support for, for restrictive measures might seem common sense or simple on the surface, but when we're a- able to dig a little bit deeper, I think we, we can see that it's it's not so simple. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, when, I, you, know, when you look at the fact that it's sort of like the presidential one we're a lot of people are okay with sort of getting into the like, well, maybe that was rigged, but nobody's ever nobody's out there saying like, well, Don Bacon, you know, he didn't actually get the votes, that was fake too, uh, you know. So like, I, I don't know. We get to this point where it's just sort of like you gotta. I don't know how we get to the ability to have conversations that are actually about sort of what's in front of us. But what you're trying to say is essentially we should have faith in the Nebraska electoral system as it exists, right? Yes. What's going right? Yes. What's, what are they doing well? Yes, they're doing a lot of things well. Um, the every every office from the Secretary of State's office all the way down to our county election commissioners and county clerks that administer our elections at a county level, um, they've added add extra measures um, in recent years of adding um, security cameras um, around their offices, especially in the rooms where ballot counting occurs, um, with the machines where it occurs. Um, also, um, it goes really well with the poll workers. Um, they're really well trained and they're really dedicated individuals to sit on, on these election days and make sure that they're checking voters in, they're following all of the rules, um, they're keeping each other accountable to make sure that everything is going as it should be and that they're following procedure of everything, um, the way that they deposit the ballots into the box, even down to that detail of just every single voter that comes in and ballot that is touched. It is following the procedures outlined. Um, and then I would just also add that um, the Secretary of State's office has shared, you know, to kind of cut through a lot of these claims that are out there to directly respond to them. Um, so the Secretary of State's office has um, shared information to to hopefully answer some of the questions that have, have been produced from all of this. And so I, I would just say that from the top to the bottom, our county election officials especially, um, they, they work with voters one-on-one as well to just make sure if there's any concerns about voter registration, which is required before anybody can vote in Nebraska, that that is processed thoroughly and accurately and that everybody you know is eligible to be a voter to begin with. And then from every step, if you're requesting a ballot, you know, you have to uh, – mailed ballot, excuse me. You have to request your mailed ballot and fill that form out, and they verify that, that you can vote. You are registered to vote. Um, and that that all of these steps are followed all the way through for for the thousands, tens of thousands of voters um, that that complete that step for each election. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Heather Engdahl, director of voting rights at Civic Nebraska, about ballot initiative 432, which would require Nebraska voters to present valid photo identification in future elections. What do you think? Do you support voter ID laws? Tell us why. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, I know uh, ballot boxes are another sort of, uh, I don't know why, but another sort of concept that gets debated where people say you shouldn't be able to go just drop off your ballot in a ballot box. But why, why are you confident that that's not really a problem? Great question. I think that those are valid, valid questions for a voter to want to learn more about as well. Um, I'm confident that they're secure because... They are um, picked up, uh, uh, collected is the word I'm looking for, um, uh, daily. Um, They are well monitored. Um, Now uh, we're seeing all the counties except for here in Omaha, Douglas County, have gone down to just one drop box um, located like at their office. Um, And additionally, the locations of the drop boxes are secure places, um, for example, like other libraries. Um, So I would just argue that we, we have not... 
We don't have any instances of anybody trying to break into drop boxes um, from from either either party or any any background, um, and they've been proven to be secure. And so I think that the questions are valid, but also the evidence and the years of using them are, are right in front of us as well. How long has mail-in voting been uh, a common way that you can vote here? It's not new, right? Right. It's not new, but um, it used to be for absentee voting um, that you needed to provide a reason for that. Um, so I believe it was actually in 1999 um, that that changed to where now it, we're a no-excuse absentee voting state. Um, and so I would argue for these 22 years of, of um, being in this century, um, it has been a widely used um, method of voting. And especially when pandemic hit, um, it even it grew. I think we had record turnout and record use of mail-in voting. And it, again, was secure. And that speaks volumes to even when a massive amount of voters started using that method that weren't before. Um, still, we saw a very smooth, very, very standard um, process for our election. So the big change is the noise then. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, so as far as things that can maybe influence elections, you often find in Nebraska politics that there's a singular driving force behind some initiatives or proposals that could reshape our state's infrastructure, like proposals to get rid of the State Department of Education or something like that. And I think a lot of the time you can sort of follow the money and find that maybe somebody's dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money or their mom's money into those proposals. Uh, so, I mean, in this case, ballot initiative 432, do we kind of know what the uh, force is behind it, what's propelling it, giving it momentum? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and thanks to the NADC reporting and records that we have, we know that um, the Citizens for Voter ID sponsors of this initiative have reported um, that I believe Marlene Ricketts is the name um, that is Governor Ricketts' mother, um, has funded the majority of their campaign contributions. Um, and so I believe it's more than a million dollars, um, nearly um, $2 million that they have reported as the funds that have made this campaign happen. Um, but I would argue that, that that's kind of alarming, um, that one single person has really funded and got gotten this initiative onto the ballot, um, all the way from paying um, the funds for are con- contributing to the payment of funds for the um, petition circulators that, that gather the signatures, um, who I would argue um, were re- misrepresenting the petition in a lot of ways, but because they were paid in this way, we got it on the ballot. Right. And that's not uh, a new phenomenon either. Correct. When has that happened before? For example, I think we've had ballot initiatives before that had very similar sort of uh, the money that was going into getting it on the ballot has worked in the past, and it's something where Governor Ricketts, a lot of the time, has a lot of means that the average citizen doesn't to sort of influence what ends up on the ballot anyway, right? Right, right. And I think as as people, as voters, um, that that's alarming. Um, one single person, no matter what office they hold, um, should not be able to, to just pay to get something onto the ballot and in front of voters to really try to push it through as a law, and in this case, changing our state's constitution in such a major way without intensive education on it, without without very clearly um, describing and providing information to the voters on what they're being asked to vote on. It's just paying to get it onto the ballot, trying to push it through, and bottom line, it's restrictive policies. Well, so maybe let's get into that then. Uh, what is it, say this does pass, say the legislature passes it in a way that looks similar to other states that maybe have some kind of photo ID requirement. Uh, how does that impact voters? 
Yeah. So to start with, um, many voters would then be denied their right, right to vote. And we know that if you're 18 years old and a citizen of the United States, you have the right to vote, right? And for, for many Nebraskans, I know the figure that right now they don't have ID, about 54,500 Nebraskans lack ID. But we know that there's tens of thousands more people who their ID might be out of date, um, might not be current. And then that also raises the question of what would be considered valid. Um, so if, if my appearance changes greatly from the photo in my ID, that could be considered an invalid ID if it doesn't necessarily look just like me on the day I go to vote. So I think just, just bottom line, we're seeing that many voters would be turned away from the polls and they would otherwise have the right to vote. But due to this added requirement, um, maybe they forgot their ID, even if they do have one that, that is current and valid and would meet the requirements. Um, and so, again, one voter turned away would be one too many, but we're looking at tens of thousands of Nebraskans, maybe even more than 100,000 Nebraskans, who even right now they might hold ID and not think this would apply to them. But if it were considered invalid based on a Pandora's box of criteria, um, they too could be turned away and, and denied their right to vote. Yeah, like I think my uh, my driver's license right now has an old address because when I renewed it, I didn't, you know, look, I don't love going to the DMV. It's not my favorite thing in the world. So I thought, okay, I'll just renew it and get the one now. I've moved since then. The picture's a little bit old. And to make sure that I'd be ready to vote, that means I'd have to take the time and money to go to the DMV to get that updated, even though it's not expired. Exactly, exactly. And we know that an ID, I think it costs $29 right now. Um, and we also know that the DMV has limited hours. So if you work during the day, um, sometimes you're not able to take work off to go to the DMV. And like you said, it's not a fun task anyway to begin with. Um, and this would be a necessary step that every time you change your address or have any other change occur, you would need to go and get a new ID. Um, and so that is very inconvenient. I could break down, I mean, from transportation, childcare, taking off work, um, and ultimately just having the additional documents, too, because um, you would need, you know, between your birth certificate or pieces of mail to prove your address. Um, and hunting those down can be can be a task as well. So as far as other states that have passed this, are, are, do we have numbers on what that did to voter turnout? Yeah, and I wish I had brought them today to share with you. But we know that, I mean, the turnout takes a hit. Um, and then as well as the wait times. So at polling places, when there's a really long line, if you're looking at a multi-hour wait time, so three hours to be able to vote, um, once those lines stack up, the hours stack up that it could take, I think that also contributes to people turning away. Like, I got to get back to work. I got to get back to, you know, wherever I have to get to. Um, and I won't I won't be able to stay here to try to vote where I I could still wait my two hours, get up there and then be be told that my my ID is not valid and I can't vote. Yeah, I mean, so you've you've kind of talked about this, and I think everyone likes to talk in this sort of romanticized idea that we all in America believe in democracy. We all love the idea that everybody votes, that everybody gets the chance to vote, and that's a really core tenet of what makes us Americans. I'm not so sure that that's actually how everyone feels, though. Uh, why, why do you think people propose these things where if there's not a demonstrable problem that can be quantified in enough numbers to justify these big changes, why would they want at least one more person to potentially not be able to vote who otherwise would have been eligible? I don't think there is a good reason. Um, I think in a lot of ways we've seen this this bigger effort of these these policies that might seem simple, like small changes that can sneak under the radar and not seem major to some people, um, but that adds up. It's a snowball effect. 
Um, and, and many states, and I'm, I'm going to um, specifically highlight Georgia, um, since 2018, Georgia, Florida, and Texas um, have passed like very restrictive bills um, related to voting rights. And um, this complicates not just having an ID, but um, complicates uh, voting by mail, um, includes closing down many polling places, um, restricting the amount of time that you have to register to vote or request a mailed ballot, get it and to return it, all of these things. And so I think the bigger picture here is I think it relates to, to power, um, control. I think I think I could speculate a lot of things about the people that are bringing things forward all across the nation. But bottom line is that it's just this one policy is the one tactic that's going to magically make our elections feel so much safer. But in reality, it would just be just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we've seen year after year in the state legislature bills related to our voting rights debated. And, and hearing the topics of those bills and those debates, we know that it's just beginning here in Nebraska. And so I would argue that it's just one measure that would be the start of many. What are some of those other concerns that you would not want to see snowball here? Yeah, so um, limiting voting by mail would be a huge one. Um, so getting rid of drop boxes would, would be terrible. Um, requiring people to to um, have less time with their ballot. Um, so if you if you decrease the amount of time um, that the between when the county election officials can send the ballot out and that it comes back in, that would be terrible. Um, also, um, thinking about felony disenfranchisement. So after uh, convicted of a felony right now in Nebraska, um, upon completion of a sentence, um, folks face a two-year waiting period to be able to vote again. Um, we would like to see that removed, but I'm concerned that could go the other way. Um, and so there's been there's been debates about um, voting rights for people system impacted um, that instead of restoring rights, um, expanding the other types of populations that we should take voting rights away from as well. Um, I would also um, highlight redistricting. So we just experienced redistricting um, right after the census. So that only occurs every 10 years. But we could see a change in in what body of people, which body of people conduct the redistricting um, and and between having more of an independent redistricting committee or commission um, and then our senators, um, the state senators um, redistricting and redrawing our lines of our districts, um, if that that rule changed, that that would not be good for voters. Um, and and we would want to see improvement instead of backtracking. Um, and then also, I would just say with voter registration as well, um, right now, it's really smooth and it's really great, but I would also have a concern of that process changing, maybe becoming more complicated or um, a longer period of time for processing. So um, that could contribute to people having to miss an election if their registration hasn't processed properly. So there's, there's a lot, in other words, a lot, lot, to, lot to keep an eye on as far as this idea of believing in democracy, believing in people voting, that it should be easy, that it should be simple, that it shouldn't take really long amounts of time, and that we should be flexible with it. Broadly, that's what you're saying, right? Right, right. So, okay, as far as ballot uh, ballot initiative 432, are there any other things we didn't cover today that you want to make sure people are aware of before they turn in their ballot? Yes, yes. I would also like to highlight the cost that this, this would be to taxpayers. Um, and so, Implementing a voter ID, a strict voter ID requirement like this, um, has been estimated to cost three million dollars the first year to implement, and then a million dollars every year after to maintain. And so that goes toward 
having workstations in every county, training um, staff to be prepared to handle the implementation of this and enforcement of this. Um, and that is an astronomical astronomical amount of money, of taxpayer money, that could be used in such better ways for actual problems we have or to improve Nebraska and life for Nebraskans, our infrastructure, our economy, our education. There are so many other uses for that amount of taxpayer money um, that, to me, that's another point to bring up because for many people, we would like to avoid our tax rates going up. We would like to avoid um, unnecessary spending in government. And so I think that's one key point I would like to uplift as well. And then just considering that there are key groups of people that would be negatively impacted by this. And so we know folks with lower income or folks that move a lot, um, young adults um, and college students who also move a lot or might be from somewhere else and already have a little bit of confusion about voting and might not have a state ID here. Um, and so we know that uh, specific groups of people are most impacted, but I would also like to highlight that the average person is also negatively impacted by this because of not only the complications that we talked about about an ID being valid, but the bigger picture of this, that we're restricting the vote for, for Nebraskans in general, and that impacts all of us because that's a threat to all of our rights. I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. So thank you so much for talking to me about this ballot initiative. Hopefully people have a better sense of what they're getting into this November. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The first segment you heard today was hosted by Maria Corpuz. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.